0: Welcome to the Mending Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Hoyt. And along with my sister, Lena Hoyt, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we want to help you recover from trauma. Whether it's childhood trauma, complex trauma, PTSD, or any other trauma sustained from abuse or narcissistic relationships, we want to help you develop skills and ways that can help you to recover from the symptoms and the effects of trauma. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, Amy here. Are you feeling stuck or overwhelmed by things that pop up in your daily life? And perhaps these are because of past traumas or toxic stress. Have you tried traditional therapy and found that it wasn't enough? I know that was the case for me. That's why we developed the Whole Health Lab. Mending Trauma has put together a program that combines the latest research with proven methods to help you recover from trauma and move forward from these daily stressors and triggers. We use somatic therapy, EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, and internal family systems therapy. We use nervous system regulation and many other tools so that we can combine the best methods that are identified in the research to help you recover without being completely overwhelmed. So you can work on trauma on your own pace, your own time, and still with the mentorship and support of a highly trained certified staff. That's us. No more waiting for appointments or sitting in traffic driving to see a therapist. With our online program, the Whole Health Lab, you can access it from anywhere, anytime, even on an app. Visit mendingtrauma.com backslash wholehealthlab and learn more Get your questions answered. We've got a frequently asked questions section and sign up so that you can have this life changing program in your world today. Don't let your past hold you back any longer. Take control of your future. And we can't wait to see you in the whole health lab. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today's episode, we're going to unpack what narcissism is. Uh, We're going to look at narcissistic personality disorder And talk about covert narcissism as well. And of course, we're going to link them in terms of what they have to do with trauma and how trauma and narcissism are related. So Lena, why don't you start us off with a definition of narcissism?
1: Okay, narcissism is um, the, it typically is going to have its roots in um, the importance of self. And so a lot of times you'll hear people talk about how they have an overinflated self-esteem. It's, it's actually not an, uh, self-esteem. It's actually the horrendous fear or terror of not being enough. And so what happens is they have these, um, symptoms that are indicative of trying to shore up a fragile and, uh, In Freudian psychology, it's called a fragile ego. Um, uh, We often talk about a fragile sense of self. Some of the symptoms that we see is that they often have an inflated sense of their own importance and they need constant admiration. They also often expect special treatment and they cannot tolerate um, being criticized or even thinking that they're being criticized. They also have an inordinate amount of energy focused on themselves and can't identify or relate to other people and their needs and their feelings. And um, when I'm working with clients that have had parents that have some of these traits, the parent is unable to connect with their child from the child's standpoint because everything has to be about the importance of the parent. Mm, that makes sense.
0: So it sounds like there's a lack of empathy as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's not a capacity for it because empathy requires that I, that I put myself in somebody else's shoes. And if I have narcissistic traits, then it always has to all be about me.
0: We hear a lot about narcissism in you know popular culture right now, and people kind of throw it around pretty loosely. In terms of diagnostics, um, what we know is that the majority of people that are narcissistic and would be, diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which is the official diagnosis in the DSM-5, the majority of those people aren't going to go in to get help because they don't see a problem. So we see a low, you know, it's it's officially there's 5% of people in the U.S. that have narcissistic personality disorder as an official diagnosis. We know that that's a little bit higher because um, often they don't see anything wrong with their behavior. Um, self-reflection is very, very difficult, and it does take self-reflection to go get help. So um, the other thing we know is that um, in terms of the narcissistic personality disorders that have been diagnosed, we tend to see more men diagnosed than women, and the symptoms show up differently differently. So, you know, typically as you were talking about, we have this inflated sense of self, which is actually um, hiding a fragile sense of self. Um, and we have other symptoms of, you know, manipulating to um basically make sure the outcome is in their favor, sometimes being um deceptive, which of course comes along with manipulation. Um we know that it shows up a little bit differently for women. And I thought maybe because I hear a lot about covert narcissism. And I wonder, is there is there a difference where women tend to be more covert narcissists, or does it fall along gendered lines at all?
1: I don't I I haven't done any research on this, but I would agree anecdotally we tend to see more. Uh, males diagnosed with a narcissistic personality disorder for females. You also, I mean, I have plenty of clients um, that are adults that had mothers who had narcissistic tendencies and traits, and I don't get to diagnose their parents because I don't, that I don't know them. I've never seen them, but it's okay for us to talk about traits. Um, I can remember working with one um one client and he was in a relationship and his girlfriend insisted that he had narcissistic personality disorder. And so I can remember talking to him about how that even, even her saying that can be a type of um, abuse because she thinks she's diagnosing him and it almost is a reflection of some of her narcissistic traits so narcissism is super interesting. Covert narcissistic narcissism is super fascinating to me because it can also be called vulnerable narcissism. And so um, sometimes what you'll see in a vulnerable narcissist is they will have a sense of, it's all, almost like a martyr complex um, and they have a lot of chronic envy, and they tend to be shy and self effacing but they're also very hypersensitive to how they think people are seeing them. And some of their um, some of the way they protect themselves is by this belief that they suffer more than anyone else.
0: That's interesting. So almost a victim mentality that's really pronounced. You know, and that what when you're talking about covert narcissism, I think what strikes me is that the way narcissism shows up for women is very aligned with covert narcissism. So I would love to see some research on the gender differences between covert, you know, narcissism and males and females. But in in narcissistic personality disorder, we know that women typically of course it includes the deep insecurity. It also includes the martyrdom some envy and jealousy, and also sometimes competitiveness with other women um, whom they see as a threat. Um, And so that's different than when we we see males who have more overt entitlement and um, are more assertive and tend to look more power hungry. Um, So I think that's really interesting. So we know we've got narcissistic personality disorder. We have covert narcissism. How, what do these have to do with trauma? Let's talk about how personality disorders develop and, and what that has to do with trauma.
1: Um, I believe that personality disorders are related to relational trauma. So, and that, that's something that you have in your early childhood. So if, If you were bullied at school, but you went home and your parents said, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. That must have been really hard. How can I support you? That the bullying at school, when you get support at home, is not going to have a profound effect on your personality. But if you have experiences at school where you're bullied and then you go home to a a parent who bullies you and he tells you not to be And don't be such a baby and shake it off and that sort of thing. Then over and over again in your home, you are not being seen or heard. And you are um, basically learning how to lie to yourself about what what's really happening. Explain
0: that a little bit. What do you mean by learning how to lie to yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I've used this example before in one of our other podcasts. It's such a great example. When in the lobby of my old office in California, I had a dad and a little girl, they were waiting for another therapist. And the dad said to the little girl, "Um, did you have fun camping this weekend? And the little girl said, well, no, not really. And he looked at her and he said, yes, you did. And that is some of what can happen that teaches us that we shouldn't believe our body, we shouldn't believe our thoughts, we shouldn't believe our perceptions, that things aren't as we perceive them to be. And narcissism is in part a big lie to ourselves.
0: Mm, it's a distorted sense of self, right? Which, yeah, that makes so much sense. I'm also aware that. When, when we do undergo trauma, um, which of course a lot of us have trauma in childhood while we're developing our personalities, that um, it can really, it, as you said, uh, I can't remember if you said it just now or before we started recording, but it, it really is rooted in self-preservation and being able to cope with the trauma that we're experiencing. So if we grow up in an abusive home, whether that's violence or sexual abuse, we're going to have these coping mechanisms that help us from completely devolving. And some of that might be creating a persona that is very, very assertive and strong, and you can't mess with me um, as a protective feature. And that you know, is coupled with the very, very deep self-loathing of being abused. And that right there can create a disconnect in terms of um, our lived experience versus our our projected personality, which I think is ripe for, you know, narcissism.
1: Yes. Well, and I think that um, you don't really get a personality disorder without early childhood trauma. I don't, I don't think it exists.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's something that's changing in the field of psychology right now. We're seeing a move, not in the DSM-5 and not in the diagnostic world, but in the, um, I would say the culture of therapy and psychology, there is a growing recognition that personality disorders come from relational trauma. And that hasn't caught up to our official diagnostic manuals, but that's what we're seeing.
1: hmm Yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out, Amy, is that, um, you know, we don't have the right to diagnose our partner or our child or our parent with narcissistic personality disorder. But I do think um, that we can take a look at symptoms and then make an observation that this person I interact with at work seems to have some of these traits And so when you understand that you can have traits without having the full personality disorder, it can help you use a set of skills with somebody, even if they haven't been diagnosed.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great distinction. So I think the other thing that I want to call out is that we don't have to officially diagnose people, as you said, and it's very, very helpful to frame, um, some of our relationships in a way that helps us understand the dynamics, just as you said. And I have suspicions of narcissism with one of our parents and, um, you know, that I, I am not qualified to diagnose them. And, but what it does is it helps me frame my relationship with them and I know what to expect and not to expect. And it helps me actually have a lot more love and empathy for them when I interact with them because I realize it's it's beyond their control at this point you know they're older they've never really gotten the help they need um, in this particular area and for me it really has helped um, the relationship be able to I've been able to maintain a relationship with them because I have framed it in a way that helps explain their behaviors.
1: Well, what you're talking about, you're talking about two things. You're talking about the difference between understanding and agreeing. You don't agree that somebody should treat you that way, but you understand that this is some of what's going to show up so that you can adjust your expectations, but also the power in knowing that it's not personal. This is a style of engagement that was developed really early in life that has nothing to do with your value. And when you can understand that, then you then you come out of interactions with some level of distress, but there's not this horrible sense of what's wrong with me that my parent can't love me. What's wrong with me that my parent can't be nice to me. What's wrong with me that my parent can't acknowledge me.
0: Can't ask about me. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Can't have a conversation about someone besides themselves. Right. Yes, it is. It has depersonalized it. And, you know, it wasn't until my late forties that I realized the, the dynamic, um, which I do believe is coming from an undiagnosed um, you know personality disorder. And um, there, of course, is grieving, involved and hurt feelings. And then, as you said, I was able to depersonalize it. And now I know when I call, 95 uh, percent of the conversation is going to be about them, or they're not really interested in continuing the conversation. And so I know, okay, if I'm going to make a call, um, am I up for this? Because I know it's not about me anymore, but I still have to have the energy to engage in that way. And I enjoy them so much more now because I I picture them as that little child who didn't get what they needed and, and that's, again, that relational trauma that we're, we're talking about that can fuel personality disorders, including a narcissistic personality disorder. What, so let's say we have a listener out there. Um, they're, they've got someone in their life that shows these tendencies. What can we give them in terms of a skill or a, um, a tool that they can use in order to engage with this person, whether it's someone at work or
1: someone in their family? I, I highly recommend um, being able to understand that somebody that has traits or personality disorder like this, they do not have the capacity to engage in connection that includes you. And so if you have that, realization then it can help take some of the sting out You st- like you mentioned we're still going to have grief we're still going to have sadness we're still going to be upset when they treat us poorly or ignore us the other thing that i think can be really helpful is to um, do what you're talking about where you kind of pick how you're going to engage with this person maybe the type of engagement where you're going to engage how long you're going to engage and it has nothing to do with how much you love the person it has to do with um, being in a place where you can say this behavior like wears me down and I have to be able to value my well-being enough to have some limits around how I engage. So
0: it's more of a mental exercise that we're giving our listeners today Mm -hmm. of radical acceptance. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which we love. We love radical acceptance. It's so freeing.
1: Yes. And then one of my clients introduced me, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 years ago to what, what is called the gray rock method. And, and, this is fascinating, and um, what it is is that when we're engaging with somebody who's uh who's building their own reality, okay, which somebody with a personality disorder um, does, there's this need inside of us to like help them see that their perception about you is incorrect, and so we kind of list all these reasons and we, these examples. But it doesn't, it truly doesn't work. And so the Grey Rock Method is about not having a reaction to narcissistic behavior. And it's it comes out of like behavioral psychology, that method. And what you're doing is you're not paying attention or giving attention to behavior that is unhealthy or damaging or abusive. Now, if you're in a marriage with somebody who's narcissistic And it includes abuse. I am not suggesting that you don't have a reaction, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you have somebody who um, you're figuring out really gets a lot of energy from your reaction. That doing that method is about not giving them any of your energy so that they find it really boring to engage with you.
0: Yeah. And that we, you know, this is such an applicable tool, especially for those who have divorced a narcissistic partner, but share custody. Um, you don't want to continue to fuel their fuel is your reaction. And so you don't want to continue to fuel, um, Give them that supply of your emotional reaction. So I think that's
1: a great method. Right. And in California, I did a lot of family court work, um, court ordered co-parenting or court ordered reunification or supervised visits. And when I'm working with a client who has an ex that has a lot of narcissistic traits, my suggestion is that they don't communicate verbally at all. So you don't engage on the telephone, you don't have conversations in person, but that you engage with, I call it email bullet points. And so it's not, you're not engaging in a conversation on email. You're saying, I'm going to drop Susie Q off at 5 p.m. at the McDonald's or the police station or wherever the courts have decided is your meeting place. I will see you then. And then a lot of times the narcissist will try to engage and hook you. Like, why do you think I'm not gonna remember this? We're all we're doing is bullet points, sticking with the facts, and we're not we're not defending ourselves, we're not doing any of that stuff, because all of that takes energy and it it fuels the narcissist.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I taught um did a high conflict divorce workshop uh last fall. Um, along with um, a good friend of mine who's a high conflict divorce coach, Megan Kelly, and um, what was so interesting is during this workshop, um, it wasn't necessarily because th- these weren't court ordered cases; these were, you know, still high conflict. And every single one of the um, attendees in our six week workshop had been married to a narcissist. And what they found most difficult was the school plays where, you know, there's no court order that they have to stay away from each other. They're both at the school play or the holiday party. And it's, it's those areas that where you can't just email bullet point. And that was the hardest time because it just felt so horrible to be treated so badly, um, you know as if they didn't exist as if you know they were terrible parents it's just it's i just want to reiterate to anyone listening dealing with a narcissist whether they've been diagnosed or not is extremely challenging
1: absolutely it's it's kind of crazy making actually
0: 100% and i think that's you know my first husband was a narcissist and I mean, he had me convinced that really that, I mean, he would count how many times I chewed before I swallowed. He would have me go back in the room and, and get dressed in a different outfit if he didn't like it. He had me convinced that um, it was me who caused him to drink and to, you know, hit me and all of these things. And it, it took years to unwind that for me. It literally made me crazy.
1: Yeah. Um, well, people people with narcissistic traits or personality disorder, they are masters at blame shifting because it can never be their fault. Like they can't ever be held accountable and they can't ever take responsibility. So anything that they're doing has to be somebody else's fault. It's it's really awful. Yeah.
0: It's, I just want to, you know, reiterate that we understand how difficult this is. And while we have these skills and these, these different tools at the very, like the foundation of this entire episode is we know how hard this is. And we are so sorry that you're going through this is it's, it's hard. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to leave our listeners with for today?
1: Just be kind to yourself when you, when you have a reaction to engaging, whether it's email or text or in person. Um, a lot of times we can beat ourselves up and say, I shouldn't be this upset or I shouldn't be this scared. Try not to do that to yourself because, um, there is a lot of abuse that happens with people that have narcissism and it makes sense that your body is going to respond in either a fight or flight or a freeze and collapse response. So be kind to yourself when you're having reactions or responses instead of making it about your own strength or your personality or um, a lot of times when you're with a narcissist, they, talk about you being dramatic because <laughs> they make you kind of crazy because they deny reality. And then when you try to point out reality there, they say, why are you so upset? I'm staying calm. Well, you know, that kind of thing. So be kind to yourself, understand that it's not your fault. It's not personal. Although they have a very excellent skill of making it personal, but it's not about you. It's about them.
0: And as always, we're so glad you're here. And if you have any suggestions for episodes, email us at hello at Mending Trauma, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Mending Trauma podcast. Lane and I are really grateful that you spend time with us each week. We know you have a choice and that time is currency. We would love if you would share this episode on social media and tag us so we can reshare. If you feel so inclined, go and give us a five-star review wherever you listen to Pods so that we can get the word out and help more people. We know that we are all working hard on our mental health, and we wish you great success this week in implementing these new skills. We'll check in next week.